Testing one two three one two three one two three Slatty's Bridge Harbour Count. Testing one two three one two three one two three Slatty's Bridge Harbour Count. Great job, that's fine. Uh, Slatty's Bridge, seventeenth of September two thousand. Uh, Harbour Count. Uh, Red Shank, forty two. Mallard 4, Blacktail Godwits, Large Flock, uh, Colourings Blacktail Godwit. Uh, I've got yellow on the left leg, uh, looks like black uh, underneath. On the right leg it's red and it's a pale colour, it looks like pale green. I'll take it as being pale green anyway. It is hard to believe that it is over 25 years since I first recorded the words Blacktail Godwit. These elegant birds spend the winter on our mud flats and estuaries. They have long legs, a long straight beak. Their body feathers are shades of pale brown, grey and white. Their wings and tails are a brilliant black and white. In fact, it gets its name from that black tail. In summer, the adults turn rusty red, a truly amazing colour. I have always wondered what exactly these birds do. And where do they go when they leave our shores in March and April? Last September I got the opportunity to find out more when I came across this particular bird with colour rings on its legs. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry I'm late, Jim. Um, I was down in Whiting Bay this morning and uh, we had a, a stranding of a, a large fin whale, oh, wow. uh, which is quite a, a, quite a, a rare event on the south coast. Brilliant. And uh, this is a huge animal. It's about 62 foot long and it's a male. I contacted my good friend Pat Smitty, a wildlife ranger with Dukas, and I asked him if he had seen this bird and knew anything about it. That was not my board. That was not the board I saw. I saw one on the 19th of October mm. uh, on the west side of Cork Harbour. Right. And that board had uh, a combination of rings, of coloured rings, on the tibia that is yeah. above, the, above the joint on, yeah. the, on, the, on, the, on the leg. And on the right leg, there was a green ring over a white ring. Mm. And on the left leg, there was a red ring over a yellow oh, ring. Very so good. They, are, they are different. Very good. Yeah. Very good. I've been looking at the Godwits since they started arriving in August. And uh, this was the first board that, that I came across. And it was very obvious as, as I was scanning the flock and counting mm-hmm. uh, so I mean hopefully we might see some more during the winter um, you know since then have you been coming across Godwits I have down indeed. your side um, I, I look at Godwits regularly in the course of doing the iWeb surveys yes yes. Uh, but I also look at them whenever I get the opportunity yeah, you know yeah. the opportunistic chances yeah. come my way when I'm driving about okay. and I look at them usually and um, there are very large flocks of blacktail Godwits uh, uh, in the East Cork area, uh, East Cork mm. and West Waterford area, there's about 1,200 of them at Ballymacoda, and I haven't seen a ring wow. among them. Right. Uh, there's another 1,200 or so on the Blackwater Callows, uh, and I've seen no rings on those either. Goodness. Uh, they're a little bit more difficult to look at on right. the Callows because they're usually in 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 floods right. and and on grass, so right. therefore it it can be a bit difficult to see rings sometimes. But the ones on the mud flats are very easy to see, and I they haven't are. I have yet to see one at Ballymacoda or at Yall Harbour or at any of the other haunts. That makes it all the more fascinating because the fact that we've had two, and I mean mm. your location is not a million miles; it's no, o- no. it's only a couple of miles directly from uh, as the Godwood flies from where I've had my bird. Correct. The fact that we've had them both in Cork Harbour. Maybe they're from a particular part of Iceland, and maybe the ones that you're seeing down along mm-hmm. uh, the east east of the county. Maybe. maybe
be a separate group. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Pat. Well, listen, I better get back to counting uh, <laughs> my patch here for the harbour count, and uh, I presume you've got to go back down to the whale, have you? You got to. Um, I, I um, probably first thing tomorrow morning. Right. That's the time. When I left Pat, I went home and I got out all the books and journals I could find, with information on Blacktail Godwits. And I was surprised to see that there was very little written about them here in Ireland. The most prominent authors on the subject were Clive Hutchinson and Dr. John O'Halloran. Clive, who passed away in recent years, was one of the greatest writers and motivators in Irish ornithology, and his contribution to the subject will be greatly missed. Dr. John O'Halloran is a lecturer in the zoology department of University College Cork. I called into him to pick his brains and to try and put another few pieces in my Godwit jigsaw. I've been interested in estuarine ecology, is the word people use, looking at that dirty mud. Yeah. And, you know, some people think, you know, when they look at rice paddy fields and tropical rainforests yeah. even, that... You know, they're really nice, and they are, but yeah. so are estuarine muds. I know when the tide is out, they look dirty and smelly, but they mm. are as rich, and really, they're a really good source of food for these animals. Black-tailed godwit have been really one of the exciting mm. ones that is mm. in, 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 in Cork. Yeah, because the colouring birds that I saw was, was back in September, and yeah. they had, uh, there was about 870 that's of them right, there. That's right, that's right. The population of birds that we have are Icelandic. There's a great yeah. name for them, Limosa Limosa Icelandica. Excellent. That's their scientific name. And there's about 10,000 of those occur in Ireland, and it's... It's really very important species, as I say, and yeah. we've been looking at the ecology of these. Um, not very much ringing, they're difficult lads to catch. They really, they fly up in and they're... They're actually quite, obviously, wary and sensitive to... They're wary and they're flight, they kind of vertically fly. Oh, so yeah, When you come yeah. up to the net, yeah. they kind of zip over and you can... Go very difficult. We tried uh, some years ago to try and catch them and succeeded with one putting a little flag on them, rather like the colourings you're yes, talking about. Yes, yes, yeah. A little yeah. flag on them to see if we could pick them up mm. over the winter to look at their distribution on the estuary right. and see what they're eating right. and feeding on. You know? Right, because obviously, just putting on the normal light metal ring yes once yes. they go into the mud you you haven't a chance hope, even no. even if you had a good telescope so yeah. obviously the, these little plastic rings little plastic allow, rings, allows yeah. us to uh, to identify them more does, clearly without having to catch them and some people you know i mean have concern i think they're it's good to mm. listen to those concerns and so i think for, as scientists we have to be absolutely sure that the reasons we're doing these things are very valid yeah. and if i could give an example maybe not focusing on the gondola but the greenland white-fronted goose as right, you probably yeah, know is a very yeah. important species too in ireland again a migratory species coming across the track yes what we found with these birds um is that these uh, winter in individual fields so Go they're away. very high faithful if that's the word used yeah, like yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. so based on, on that information we were able to the, the, and Dukas and others have been able to draw up uh, management plans for the conservation of these species Right. and I guess it could be the same with the god but we don't know I mean right. maybe there are particular staging sites maybe there are particular patches and fields right. because these birds also go in fields we've been finding in, in this, our studies in yeah, there, yeah a lot of people think of waders as down on the estuary yeah, in the mud all absolutely. the time but not, not so with the, the godwit. No, they, they can right. travel. I suppose like most people looking at them see this big long beak and long legs, and yeah. we know ecologically that the reason, general reason for that, is that they can wade in shallow and deep water. Okay. And okay. they can feed and probe in the mud. Yes. Um, but also, when it gets very cold and they, they need more food, yeah. and the food is less available after yeah. the winter because all these birds are eating lots of, yeah. lots of grub, they move on to the fields and they feed on little beasties. What sort of food items have you found that they, they're after in the well, mud? We, we've, done, we've looked at it in two ways. One is by visually looking at birds and also looking at dead, dead birds. Right, OK. okay. Uh, okay looking yeah. at visually, they do a number of things. You can see some of them pulling a little, little what looks like a little tube out of the okay, water. OK, And at the end of that little tube is a little bivalve, like a... Uh, like a cockle or... Cockle, something yeah, like yeah, a cockle. Yeah, 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 yeah. And... The tough thing for these little cockles when the tide is out, um, the, the godbirds are feeding, when the tide is in, they have a little siphon, like a little tube, right, okay. that comes up out of the ground and, and uh, fish eat it at high tide. So they'll eat either the tube itself or the whole animal and they'll break it open and eat inside it. Go they'll away. also take these worms, which most, most of us will know, these ragworms, yes. um, 
uh, and they'll just pull them out of the mud yeah. and you can see them yanking and you their can head. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and when the fast movement, then they could be just taking small little shelled animals. Mm. Uh, but how, how can the mud flat um, sort of accommodate? I mean, because there's more than just the goblets out there. But how come? I mean, obviously during the summer. It, Mud flats in Ireland become pretty much deserted. Sure, that's right. So is yeah. is that is that the time when when it recoups? It recoups so to speak? exactly. I guess it's a, it's a fairly tough place to live in a nestry. I guess it's like living in a pint of Guinness if you want to. <laughs> it's a great place to be if you like it. <laughs> right. Okay. It's a really good really, place to yeah, be. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The, and the result of that is that you have what we call low diversity, so low number of species of, of the animals that live in the mud. Okay. But those that are there, there are thousands, thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands. Wow. And maybe if we just think about it for one moment, let's take you talk about eight hundred black-tailed goblins. Yes. Now in one day they would probably eat probably about 30% of their body weight, which is about 500 grams. In a day? In a day, uh, Wow. So what happens then is they keep eating this food. Yeah. So they keep eating all those small beasties. Can you imagine all those small beasties in a big tub? Uh, My God. And they got to keep on eating those. You've 800, and if you take somewhere like Cork Harbour, which has, I don't know, sometimes up to 30,000 or 40,000. So it kind of gives you... In importance, I talked about the tropical rainforest earlier. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have the great species and colours that people yeah, really like, but yeah. it does have the really rich food. That pint of Guinness that's really that's quite incredible. good that they all migrate down yeah. to get. Yeah, you know? because as you know yourself from doing the harbour cones, yeah. and I've mentioned the eye webs with Pat and stuff like that. The you know, a lot of people, you know, look on mud as sure. something to be, and they call it reclaim because, absolutely. but it's not really, it's, never been, it's, it's not reclaiming it. Not. It's no, just it's claiming it yeah. for development. Yeah. And and obviously, uh, it, you're pointing out there that, that that it is incredibly valuable. Incredible, uh, and I, it's the really message that I really like to always yes. preach is that yes. really we have to yeah. make sure that that mud, when it's there, looks great. Mm. To me, it looks fantastic and it's really yes. good for the birds. And most people, unfortunately, you just want to put a little bit of water over and put a boat on yeah. it, and that yeah. would completely yeah. ruin it. I mean, yeah. once you change that delicate balance between the yes. salinity of the water, yes. which is a member, to, I suppose the question we should ask is why do we have mud flats? What mm. happens is you have fresh water carrying all the, the mud and suspended solids, as we call them, down the river, yeah. hits the salt water, yeah. and it all drops out. And, you know, if you don't have that, then you won't have a, a mud flat. And if you don't have a mud flat, you don't have all the animals that are there. You don't yeah. have the birds. Yeah. And, the God and of course, and those, those birds go to Iceland. And Iceland has, has, a, has a right to have them protected Iceland, as much as and, we do. And some of them come through Britain as well. So, I mean, I think we have a huge responsibility right. for kind of fly, what, what they're calling now right. in the United States, a flyway management, that we, we manage the flyways. And each of us have responsibilities along mm-hmm. that route. Mm-hmm. And by ringing, we can track that route right. very carefully, right. you know. My God, with jigsaw is starting to take shape. But to complete the picture... I have to travel to Iceland, where they will pair up and breed during the long summer months. It is now the end of April, and as I sit in the plane looking through the in-flight magazine, I can't stop thinking about the Godwits. There is no room for hand luggage or duty-free, for these birds are travelling super-economy class. We take nature so much for granted. Without the detailed study of birds, we would not be able to fly to Iceland. Our efforts to imitate the ultimate flying machine pale into insignificance. It took 64,000 pounds of engine thrust just to get us into the air. And we will burn four and a half tonnes of fuel on the 800 mile journey to Reykjavik. Their fat reserves, which have built up on the estuaries of Ireland, are the fuel tanks, vital for their journey. Their muscles are the finely tuned engines which would be the envy of any pilot. Their brain houses the most sophisticated navigation system, which seems to run on autopilot and is more reliable than any airline. We will stop at Glasgow on the way. The Godwits will leave Cove and stop off briefly on the Shannon before setting out on a non-stop 36-hour flight across the harsh North Atlantic.
Arriving into Reykjavik is amazing. It is as close as I have ever come to experiencing what it must be like to land on another planet. There are no green fields, dark landscape, lava flows frozen in time forming vast desolate lowlands. Huge plateaus rise from these lowlands and scale is difficult to gauge with no trees of any size and few houses. As I look up at these mighty walls I notice tiny specks in the sky. With my binoculars I discovered that they are fulmers, hundreds of them gliding along the top of the cliffs which in parts must be over 200 metres high. Iceland is famous for its volcanic origin. It's one of the youngest countries on the planet and it is still growing, pushing up new land and expanding at a rate of two centimetres a year. Irish monks are credited with being the first people to live on Iceland's inhospitable landscape, but it was the Norse who first settled here in the 10th century. Few species survive here. There are no swallows, no bats, no frogs. Those that do seem to thrive in large numbers. It was amazing to see wild greylag geese grazing in the centre of Reykjavik, red shanks singing from the tops of street lamps and competing well with the noise of passing traffic and snipe drumming down the main street. What has brought me here is my search for Irish colouring to Godwits, and for the past five years, Pete Potts, a countryside ranger in Hampshire, England, has been leading a team that have been catching and studying the Godwits here in their summer home. Oh, Godwits, look at that! Ah! Fantastic, well, well done. Whoa! What's that? 200 of Godwits here migrating <laughs> north as we speak, going right Look, past and, us. And they're moving very fast, very aren't they? they? You right, can see yeah. they've got a purpose in their, in their flight. Yeah. They're not like the birds we have just here. And then in V formation and what have you as well. That's fantastic. They're actually freshly in, I expect. May have arrived um, this morning or last God. night. So these, these could conceivably be birds I was watching in That's Dublin possible. the last couple of weeks. If you look at the angle of flight, they've probably come from Hampshire, where I'm from. <laughs> that, well, you're the expert. I, I'll have to bow to your... Um, we've also been colouring some of these birds in, in the Solent and on the Wash okay. uh, in, in the UK, and we know that um, the birds from the Solent are, are, do come through this site. We've had a number of our colouring birds spotted here. Yeah. The fastest movement we've had is 36 hours after it was last seen in, Go in uh, n- near Portsmouth. That, that's an incredible... Uh, it's about 1,900 kilometres in 36 hours. <laughs> Yeah. It really so puts it all in perspective, off, doesn't they, it? They, they just go for it, they're on the way. These look like sort of the well, first swallows of well, Iceland. The Icelanders, uh, they're called Yarrakan up here. Yarrakan. Yarrakan's the Icelandic. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that quite right. Okay. But uh, one of the things the crofters and the farmers up here uh, look forward to seeing is their first Yarrakan back on their meadows. And, really? Uh, yeah, they don't get swallows, they get goblets. Yeah, because of course they know that when they're coming, summer's on the way. Oh, definitely. And of course the colourings allow you to actually get more information. Huge more. amounts of information. Yeah. Of the 170 birds marked here last year, somewhere in the region of uh, 75% have been seen again. Excellent. And uh, something, just over 50% have been seen outside Iceland. Wow. And the uh, majority of those in Ireland, of course. Oh, yeah. As you know, I think. Which is one reason why we're here, <laughs> yeah. We, we did see an Irish bird, uh, one that's been in Ireland in September, in Reykjavik uh, yesterday and the day before. Excellent. Not far from your hotel. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so um, when you've finished looking at this spot here, I mean, I mean, why did you decide 
to look at this particular spot because it, it looks, well, forgive my ignorance, but it doesn't look much more different than a lot of the spots we've well, passed on the way. I know, it's, well, it's partly access because we've got a road crossing through the middle of this marsh, but um, okay. it is a huge sedge fan here, wet, wet area, which, uh, which isn't, hasn't been drained. Right. And uh, there do seem to be a lot of, uh, of drainage that's gone on in, in Iceland in the past, but right. uh, there's very few of these really big really? wetlands around. Looking around the landscape, it looks like as if it's, most of it's untouched. Not, yeah, not the case I'm when not, you go a bit closer. Well, no? possibly not. I'm, yeah. I'm not an expert on yeah. management of yeah. Iceland. Yeah, so okay. It's, uh, wherever you get sort of wet areas like this, you might pick up goblet. Yeah, because well, before we left, I was down on the, the Bull Island in, in Dublin and a uh, completely different landscape to this. Oh, it's yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Without a doubt. And it's, uh, I've not been there myself, but the, yeah. look at this brilliant landscape here with mountains in the background and snow tops. You know, last year, of course, this was uh, completely frozen in, and you couldn't uh, you could run across this on ice sheets. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just uh, phenomenal. You wouldn't walk out there now if you sink. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a big fan. Right. Probably disappear. And, it's the, so and the Godwits are here already. Well, they're, yeah. they're here on mass, and they're finding um, crane fly larvae, okay. dead long legs larvae. Right. Okay. And uh, what, what sort of uh, final figures do you hope to, to sort of see? Well, the last we've been here. This is our third spring. Yeah. And. Uh, the last two years, we've recorded in a two-week period over twenty thousand birds, and we've checked about between five and six thousand for colour rooms, and about one in one hundred and fourteen colour rooms. So, so you're getting a good feel for yeah. for, for, for the well, populations. We, well, and one the thing, the thing yeah, one of the things we're trying to do is work out population size, right. and we'll get a, a different handle on that. And we think there's about sixty thousand birds in the population. That's wor- that's the world population uh, of the Icelandic race. Of, of Icelandic race, yeah. They all come to Iceland to breed. Yeah. Just just interrupting there. There looks like there's a few birds coming through. Some hooper swans. Yeah, some hooper swans. Unlike our own mute ones, these are quite noisy. They certainly are at the moment. They're displaying away like mad. Yeah. Yeah. We saw about fifteen hundred hooper swans in the area, uh, so they've really arrived. The, the weather's changed and everything's suddenly come in. Barn hookies have arrived. Pink feet have come in on, in big numbers. Uh, so, 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 and obviously, the, the, the species you're mentioning are, are birds that we have all winter. That's right. So, so I mean, Iceland. How would you rate Iceland like in importance for for, oh, birds for, for Ireland and Britain? It's highly important. It's, I mean, it's crucially interlinked. You know, right. with the, you know, this is where they all come to breed and they come into the nest. So. And and through your colouring studies, as you, as you mentioned earlier, obviously you're, you're finding out. It sounds like as if you're finding out it's more like a, a chain that's linked together no, rather than just isolated. Very much a so, yeah. we, Quite a lot's come out of it in the last year. The birds we marked in, Ice, in, in Iceland last spring, in April and May, we know a lot of them have migrated back to the UK via the East Coast okay. and, and into places such as the Wash. And then they've gone across to, um, to Ireland, uh, as you know, in about September. Mm. And some of those birds have actually now uh, gone back to the East Coast of the UK <laughs> before they come up here. So everything, all these places are interlinked. Mm-hmm. And without that, so with, you know, if you take away one of those sites... Um, or several of them, yeah. you know, you're affecting the entire you're, you're, The whole chain falls apart, yeah. and, and in fact the whole yeah. system could collapse. Yeah, yeah because of course in, in, in old days we, we tended to, to look on migration uh, like from on a map, yeah. and you sort of just drew a straight line, that's, that's you right. know, and, and it's, yeah. it's obviously not well, a straight line. These colouring projects are showing that, um, you know, it's, it's a far more complicated than we first thought, and uh, these lots and lots of places are interlinked. I mean, uh, at Guillaume's Reserve in Brittany, yeah. he's one of the birds we ringed at this site last year, at this marsh where we yeah. are now, has been wintering with him. <laughs> but before that, in, in the autumn, it was in the, on, the, on the Humber, the Humber side, and it's, it popped in at the Solent before it went on to Brittany. And we went over to Brittany in February, as a dozen of us went over, yeah. and uh, saw that bird, and it's been there for the next month. It's great to be able to see your own bird again. Pete's team is truly international. They come from Britain, France, Iceland... 
and this year there is even someone from Japan. As I stood in this beautiful landscape with this group of people, it was very clearly brought home to me just how important it is for nations to cooperate to protect our global natural heritage. All this work might seem of little use to us, but without proper understanding of the birds and their environment, we cannot provide protection for them through laws and the establishment of nature reserves. Unfortunately, Ireland has one of the lowest numbers of educational nature reserves in Europe per head of population. I use the term natural heritage because to me our birds, fish, animals, plants make us what we are as much as our social and economic heritage. Most of the damage that we have caused has been through ignorance and the lack of appreciation. Even now the Celtic tiger is in grave danger of turning into a septic tiger because we seem to be totally focused on destroying the very landscape that makes us Irish. Sarah Dorkins, a conservation officer with the RSPB in Brighton, spoke to me about the value of nature reserves. Oh, well, I mean, reserves, reserve holdings are crucially important. Mm. Um, we're finding now that breeding waders in, in Britain are declining rapidly, and a lot of the species now are fairly much uh, restricted to the nature reserves. Blacktail goblet in Britain almost totally breed on RSPB nature reserves really? and nowhere else. So reserves are going to provide, at the moment, a stronghold for them and safeguard the, the populations until we can sort land use out in the UK. Yeah. Uh, in terms of showing people birds, again, it's crucially important. If... if People are, are providing us with the money to be able to do the conservation work. Yeah. Um, that's All our money comes from membership. And it's, it's important that there's that public will out there, that, that mm. these things are important. So the nature reserves, where we can show people these spectacles. Like today, we were seeing this number of birds coming in. Um, you know, if, if you can take people out and show them that, yeah. then it, it makes it real to them and it makes it important to them as well. So do you that. find this, this experience here in Iceland very valuable? I do. I mean, I work on wetlands and agriculture, so coming out here and seeing wetland birds in a slightly different setup. Um, it all adds to, to my understanding of what's yeah. going on. And it, it's nice to get back, get your feet a bit muddy and wet and get back yeah. to the real stuff. And obviously it's filling in the picture for you because when, you, when you're explaining that to people that's back right. home, uh, yeah. you, you, you've, you've got the first-hand experience that's up here. Because right. these, these goblets obviously are wintering down in the UK. So what they're using here is, is very different to the habitat they're using in the winter in the UK, which mm. is estuary habitats. Mm. But it's those, those two habitats, this marsh and the estuary in, in the winter, that mean you know make or break for those mm. birds. If, if we lose one or the other, we'll lose them completely. So would you be a bit surprised if I told you that in Ireland we actually don't have reserves that would be specific for waders? I'm not surprised at all. I mean, Ireland obviously has a lot of breeding waders and, um, you know, it's it's one of those things, isn't it, that that Ireland doesn't have nature reserves. Maybe it's maybe it's because you don't have I don't know don't have the need in, in the same way. The same pressure. Um, we've got huge development pressures and huge yeah. land use pressures in in the UK. Um, certainly in southern England, where we've got you know big numbers of breeding waders in yeah. North Kent and, and East Anglia. Um, certainly in North Kent, I'm not sure that much mm. of the grazing marsh would be there in the same way if it wasn't for nature reserves. Okay. I think it would have been drained. Not all the members of Pete's team have a background in blacktail godwits. Midori Kriyama is a Japanese student. And our presence provided a perfect example of how this work that looks very specialised and of little value to society can help people who may never see a blacktail godwit. She is doing a PhD on community involvement in the green space environment and this is what she told me about her work. I come from Tokyo, a highly, highly populated and highly built up area and I noticed after I come over here that I'm, without me notice, it's like an instinct, you want to... You want to have a natural area mm. around yourself. But I didn't have a chance to see it. And once I come over here mm. and get involved with lots of these natural um, 
conservation activities. And I, I was really lucky to have a chance to notice that this is what I really wanted, get involved with the community, because uh, this project is unique in the sense that this is not something that uh, this is not the top-down approach to the activity. And of course, you, you've been working with Pete and, yeah. and the team back in England for for yeah. quite a while. Yes, uh, it's been second winter. Yeah, um, I've done. I start late summer of 1999 okay. doing uh, swallow ringing in Farington. Really? Yeah. yeah. So, do do you think that this is all very sort of specialist and you know? They're doing it just just for themselves, or do you actually think, looking at it from your point of view, yeah. with the community yeah. in mind, yeah. do you think this has any value? Yes, I, I mean, uh, for example, um, um, in in my country, in Japan, these sort of, I think this is general in general, this is very the activity which need require high skill and knowledge and everything, but over here they try to involve lots of people who hasn't got experience, who hasn't got knowledge or a professional uh, qualification profession, yeah, right okay. that's right but they are very keen on let let us do something and they try to, to teach something new every day okay. and this absolutely and helped me appreciate the birds or the, the natural 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 nature, history, yeah, yeah, natural yeah, history yeah. in general and, and what do you think you'll, you'll be able to bring back to japan and put into well, unfortunately, in, in Japan, uh, these sort of activities has been limited to the very small number of professionals. Right. Um, I'm trying to 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 contact them and to improve and improve knowledge and skills more and more because it's come from my deep in my mind. I can see that there must be a lot of people like myself who is living in the urban area who want to get involved to create a natural area. After a long day studying the birds on the vast open plains, I headed back to Reykjavik, where I had arranged to rendezvous with the team for our first attempt at catching godwits using cannon nets. The use of cannons to trap birds might sound terrifying, but as John O'Halloran was saying, godwits are very difficult to catch, and this method, while very labour-intensive, can be very effective and brings the birds to no harm. Most of our knowledge about the movements of these birds comes from catching them in this way. So what is the usual criteria that decides when the button is pressed on the cannon netting? Uh, quite difficult, really. Um, Whether you feel there's enough? When, yeah, when you've got enough birds that are in a stable position, um, yeah. far enough away from the net. Okay. But, you know, you've got to have them within about 10 yards to be sure of catching okay. them. So. Okay. And, and is it Pete takes the ultimate decision on that? Pete takes the ultimate decision. Okay. He's the boss. Well, he's the boss. All yeah, right. I mean, the tide's turned now, so it's dropping we're, off, we're, um, which means we won't be waist-deep in water as well. Which, OK. Obviously, you've got to make sure that you can lift the birds safely from the team. So you mean as well. you may end up normally waist-deep in... Uh, not waist-deep, hopefully. Water. Knee-deep knee would oh, be good. Oh. Bloody cold. Uh, <laughs> cold. I've already been in today once, so I can tell you it is quite cold at the moment. Really? Yeah. yeah, I fell in earlier. <laughs> How many people have you gotten involved in this? Um, today, I think there's about ten here in the team. Um, okay. Got four Icelanders to help okay. start um, translating for the police when they turn up, if they turn up, or if we have any problems with yeah. any of the locals. Right. Um, but it's their site as well, so that, that helps. And then we've got a team of, well, about eight, eight to ten mm. British, Japanese, French, Excellent. whatever. But you actually, you actually have a licence to do this here? We do have a licence, yeah. <laughs> Goodmunder is, is a professor here okay. in, in Iceland, and he's, okay. he has a licence, um, and we have all the permissions we need. But okay. Um, okay. Um, we've got quite a few footpaths around here as well, so yeah, this number of people amazing. walking around always attracts attention. And does Pete have the... Uh, 
detonator. The, the firing box is down here. Oh, yeah. So he might tell you, hit the button, is it? We Absolutely. should get instructions yeah. relayed, yeah. That's a lot of wire. It's a it's, lot of cable there. It's incredible. And it's the red button. Is it's it, the red button. It's the red the button red, there. The and you have button. a few switches as well there. Yes. What, 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 what are so those? We, so we have the arm switch here, which uh, charges the capacitor in the uh, firing box. Okay. The individual uh, net switches, so we can fire either net or both nets okay. together. And, and a big red button, which is fired on the countdown from across the way okay. over the radio. And it all depends on whether the birds turn up in the right place or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, sort of shepherding. Would that be would that be the word? That would be a good word. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, we call it twinkling. 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 Oh, twinkling. <laughs> I've never come across that in any of my bird books. <laughs> Trapping these birds is a huge task. From watching the birds to finding out where is the best place to catch them, to checking the tide and weather ensuring you have enough qualified people to deal with the birds quickly and safely, setting the nets with the explosives carefully packed into the miniature cannons, and ensuring that when the cannons go off, no birds are injured. While we were waiting for the birds to move off the mud flats onto the roosting area where the nets were set, I took the opportunity to talk to the man who probably knows more about the black-tailed godwit in Iceland than anybody else. He is Thomas Gretter Gunnison, and he is currently studying their breeding ecology and migration strategy. Waders are generally appreciated by, yes. the, by the public, but uh, they don't attract a lot of funding because um, it isn't. They aren't economical, so really, the, the funding goes do, into do game not, birds and do, seabirds and things like not, that. Uh, the tourist industry see them as, as important, no? They probably would if they were, if if they would disappear. But since they're everywhere, they're just taken as granted. So. Okay, so so, uh, so uh, there's plenty about. There's, there's plenty of them, no, so. Don't worry. But people don't worry about them. Yeah, we saw yesterday now that the, the, some areas are being drained. We could see these these big long drains with these mounds. They were, you could see the drains from very far away. Yeah. Will these affect um, Godwit breeding areas? That, that's one of the things I'm hoping <laughs> to study. But uh, over 90% of all wetlands in the lowlands have been drained to some extent. 90%? Well, over 90%. Wow. Some of them are really wet still, and uh, Godwit seem to prefer the wetter places. So. We can assume that drainage has had some effects. But, uh, yeah, because, of course, for people back home who, who watch the Godwits in the winter in Ireland, uh, like myself, on the south coast, uh, that would be bad news for us because if the breeding grounds become degraded and become bad, well, then we don't have as many birds in Ireland. Yep. So we've, sure. got a, um, you know, we've, we've both got interest in keeping the birds uh, in good condition while they're breeding. And also at home, would you agree with that? I agree with that. Uh, we see Godwits as uh, our birds, but really they don't. They, they only spend uh, three months here. Yes, you know, yes. They spend the rest of the year with with you. So but of course there are, we, we only make them. There but, are birds, but uh, the your birds. <laughs> because because in we terms see of, them in the winter. In terms it, of months, yeah, yeah, your birds. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is the, this is one of the things I'm trying to uh, bring out in the program that I'm doing, is the sense of you know ours and yours, yeah. because uh, really they belong to nobody and everybody. True. But uh, like yourselves, you've hit the nail on the head that you only see them as yours because you only see them in this country. And when they go away, it's not so much uh, yep. of an importance to you. Would yeah. that be true? It's uh, definitely a joint responsibility. Do they all disappear from here? I mean, uh, what we're seeing now, will, will, will it go quiet? Uh, uh, it'll, it'll go much more quiet than this. The, the, uh, the month with the lowest numbers of waiters here is May. 
the birds are heading species after species to the breeding grounds now and uh, uh, failed breeders and uh, early breeders will start returning in, in June. Yes, because we, we get them on the south coast, uh, you know, first week in August, even in July. Yep. Uh, and some birds stay all year. We reckon they must be young birds and birds that aren't going to breed and they actually stay. But there's only a very, very few. And then those birds that you mentioned must be the ones that start heading back yep. ahead early, yep. of those that are successful mm-hmm. at breeding. And then... Um, <clears throat> just just to give it a flavour for... I mean, I know you're only getting into the study now. What will the birds be eating? You know, what will they feed their young? Because when we were out uh, on the breeding grounds, uh, as they are now, there didn't seem like there was a, a lot for them to feed on. No, they uh, they feed on uh, uh, invertebrates, mm. surface invertebrates mainly. Uh, the young, they don't start poking the bills yeah. down the sward, yeah. in, into the sward uh, until they're quite big. So, so they're, they're mainly take, taking from the surface and maybe from bushes and, and are uh, they feeding and on their own from, from day one? Uh, they're doing that, yeah. Really? They, actually, they, they lose a little bit of weight from the, from the time they hatch and the next few hours yeah. they haven't quite gotten the hang of uh, feeding for themselves so they lose a little bit of weight. So they the first starve few hours. a little and then once they, they, little. once they get the idea, yep. they're away. Yep. And will the parents watch over them all the time? Uh, and for how long will the parents <laughs> watch over them? They split uh, just about the time the chicks fledge, which is uh, just less, less than a month old. Then they really? fledge and then they split. Do, do the adults start returning back to places like Ireland first? And do they, they leave do. the young ones? They do that, yeah. Ah. So all the young ones are left behind? Uh, the oldest chicks are able to follow the mm. adults, but we, we don't know that. But uh, generally they arrive separately on the winching grounds. Uh, and do you think you're going to end up with more questions than answers after your study? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, I, I wish you all the best and uh, we look forward to see what you come up with because uh, it will obviously affect our birds as well, such as uh, survival rate, because more birds that survive here, well, the more birds we see in the winter. Yeah. And I uh, hope you start, you keep on yes. treating your godwits as well as you have, so we keep on getting them here in spring. Brilliant. Also. Okay. That'll be good. Ten hours after the nets were set, and still the birds managed to elude us. Hello. Can we have an update, please? No change. Left the red shanks. Over. Lots of red shanks. Okay, so it's firing likely. Becoming increasingly unlikely, I would say. Left the top of the Arrive. Over. Okay, we're still standing by. Our option is we go down there now, call it a day for this evening and go and reset the other nets and hope um, those cartridges are okay. Have a look at those. Over. Yeah, we could make the most of the daylight and just, um, yeah, get on with uh, sorting the equipment ready for the morning. As in resetting. Um, Well, I was thinking that as well, over. Is that a plan then? Yeah, it could be. I'll just uh, check with the uh, others here. Yeah, two goblet overhead coming your way. Okay. They're circling in, yes. Yeah. That lovely call there. Wick, 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 yes. wick. Fantastic. And, and slightly, some of these birds are only, only just, just reaching Iceland. Yeah, it could be just arriving. They seem to know where the net is. <laughs> To like because they're heading out there and another has dropped in they're dropping out of nowhere
The birds never did come within range of our nets, so we went back to the catching site early next morning. It was very cold but dry. While we waited for the birds to come within catching range, groups of godwits were dropping out of the sky, calling loudly as if to say, we made it, we are here at last. Things were looking good. Then word came through that we had just been given provisional orders from Pete that we might fire the nets and we were to take up our positions just in case. All goes quiet and at this point there is no room for messing about. All minds are focused on the birds and the order to fire. OK, Ruth, ready when you are. This box is ready. Team at base camp are ready, are they? Over. Yes, they're listening in. Yeah, copy that. Base camp is standing by and ready for catch. Let's go for it now then. Three, two, one, fire. As we ran to the nets, I hoped there might be a godwit, but there was no such luck. We had caught Dunlin, Redshank, Oyster Catchers and Ringed Plovers, all birds that winter in Ireland. If we wanted godwits, we would have to try again. Pete suggested Burgonus, about 40 kilometres northeast of Reykjavik. The team was heading east soon, so this would be our last chance. We're in a much better location. We're set on this um, spit just on the edge of the uh, water and uh, the birds should be arriving at any moment. Yeah, there's a lot of noise out there. We've actually seen quite a few uh, that today, which we didn't see. I mean, yesterday there wasn't as many. They were all flying over. There's actually birds feeding on the estuary today. That's right. In this particular area, there's some hundreds of godwit. Yes, yeah, so this is, uh, looks much more promising. I mean, it seems to be uh, like uh, Russian roulette, really, isn't it? Uh, well, the birds have been on this particular point for three days, so we're quite hopeful that this is, you know, this is the best place and See, they really will want to be there. You've done your homework and now it's up to the well, birds to uh, yeah, do theirs. We can't do any more. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, one black-tailed godwit uh, very close to the nets at the moment. Oh, good. Might just be this side, but good. it's uh, in the right position. Right area. So, and you were saying to me earlier that this is, this is exactly what you wanted. Once you had one bird near the area, does it attract more birds in? Inevitably, birds will come in uh, with other birds. Um, in some situations, we would actually have a decoy out here, but we haven't got any. What would the decoy consist of? Uh, a decoy, decoy would be a, a dead bird that had been picked up somewhere, a road casualty, okay. something like that, um, that had been stuffed. Right. <laughs> made to look like a, a, a live bird. Right, OK. And that, that actually works sometimes? Yeah? Oh, normally you can get birds to come into decoys. Cool. Yeah. If they're, they're well done. Ah, excellent. So, uh, But this time, unfortunately, you're, you're, you're relying on, on the real thing. Yes, we'll yeah. go for some live birds. Good and stuff. That's what we seem to have at the moment. Good stuff. So fingers crossed now. Godwits had just landed in the catching zone, some 500 metres away. Pete once again told us to take up our positions. OK, Ruth, ready when you are. Yep, OK, the, the, the box is armed, we're connected and ready to go. OK, Pete to base camp. Um, everybody ready for a quick catch? Looking like it's about 20 birds just into the tide edge. Um, can you just confirm that everybody's ready for that, over? Yeah, copy that, Pete. Base camp's ready for a wet catch. Excellent. OK, we'll go for quick fire then. Um, connect up, Ruth, and three, two, one, fire. Once the word fire was heard, in an instant the red button was pressed. A loud bang was followed by the nets arching over the roosting birds, and everyone raced to the godwits. Well, it's been quite a long three days trying to catch godwit. Um, I mean, they're the target species, obviously, so that's what we've been aiming to try and get. We've had a, a few sites, but nothing really promising except this one. It's um, a numbers game, really, between whether you actually try and catch what you might have here. I mean, today we've caught, I don't know, 30 birds, say, 
um, or whether you go for, for waiting so you can actually get a, a much bigger sample and many more birds colour ringed, which obviously is, is the main intention of the project, that we get quite a lot of birds ringed, so we've got a lot of sightings coming in and we can get a lot of data from it. So, yeah, it's been a long three days. I think everyone's shattered, but catches like this always uh, always perk people up a bit and the team will be well happy after this today. But I'm very cold right now. Very cold indeed, and I want to get out the wind. After carefully extracting oh. the birds from the nets, they were measured and weighed before the colour rings were put on their legs. Yeah, this is the uh, final phase for this. It's just, just put the colour rings on there. It's got a combination of white, red, green lime. And this means we can identify this bird in the field the rest of its life using binoculars or telescopes and track it through its, through its wintering and breeding range. And um, this will help give us a huge amount of information hundreds of observations during its lifetime on um, its movements but also on its survival a number of these birds mark now and we can look at the survival rates of these birds from the observation rates and we know that these goblets are living certainly the ones wintering on the south coast have uh, got an annual survival rate of over 90% there's less than 10% of the population die each year uh, and the ones from the east coast where we think it's um, the uh, habitat's not quite as good uh, for feeding, that they've got a lower survival rate, something about 80-85%. Um, so the colour rings are now on, uh, ready for its release. Well, Pete, this is, this is the, the end of the road for this, yeah. d- this stage. Well, the end of the road, yeah. Uh, this, hopefully I'll look out for this one in Cork. Yeah, this bird's all been ready for release really now. It could and turn up in Cork Harbour. It could do. Next yeah. winter. So, time to go, mate. Oh. Come on. Up you go, running out oh, across the grass. Look at those wings. Look at that. Look at that. Off it there goes, it goes. across wow. the marsh, back to join the, the roost over there on the salt marsh. Absolutely excellent. So about a hundred birds watching really all this good. going on, thinking what's happening. And it's up against the snowy mountains now, look. And it's Certainly heading out is. towards the marsh. It's over Borgonus here. Absolutely fabulous backdrop, really great backdrop. Hopefully I'll have a successful breeding season, that bird, and you'll see it back with you in the winter. Yeah, <laughs> I am now back in Cove, and the sights and sound of Iceland are still fresh in my mind. The Godwits are busy rearing their newly hatched young, which will hopefully arrive here in August. I just got an email from Pete. He says that a colouring Godwit that we saw on our first day was seen at the Bull Island last September and spent most of the winter in Wexford. My journey with the Godwits was memorable and hopefully I will again see those colouring birds that I released that day last April, feeding with the thousands of other black-tailed Godwits that will fly from Iceland to spend their winters here in Ireland. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.